0: Welcome to this eHIV Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on women and HIV. With us today are that issue's authors, Dr. Jean Anderson, Professor of Gynecology and Obstetrics and Medicine, and Dr. Janelle Coleman, Assistant Professor of Gynecology and Obstetrics and Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. eHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss the management of contraception in HIV-infected women, describe counseling for preconception and conception options for serodiscordant couples, and explain the challenges to adherence during pregnancy and the postpartum period. Both Dr. Anderson and Dr. Coleman have indicated that they have no financial interests or relationships with any commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of their presentation, and that their discussion today will not reference the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the HIV Review. Dr. Anderson, Dr. Coleman, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: In your newsletter issue, doctors. You reviewed the recent literature describing the special concerns healthcare providers need to be aware of when treating women with HIV infection. Our focus today is to discuss how some of that information can be applied in the exam room and the clinic. Uh, so if you would, Dr. Coleman, start us out by presenting a patient, if you would, please.
1: A 31-year-old woman who has been infected with HIV for five years presents for a routine checkup. She's been taking a once-daily tablet of efaviren and sitritabine successfully over the past two years. Recent laboratory tests reveal a CD4 cell count of 700 cells per microliter, an HIV RNA level that is less than 20 copies per mil. The patient also has a history of major depression, and she is followed by psychiatry. A daily selective serotonin-releasing inhibitor was recommended. However, she declined. She regularly visits with a therapist, and she reports today that her mood is stable. In terms of her reproductive history, the patient has four living children and had three prior elective terminations. She has been taking injectable depot medroxyprogesterone acetate, or DMPA, for six years and has vaginal spotting occasionally. The patient has a long-term HIV-positive male partner, but also reports one to two casual male sexual partners over the past six months. She uses condoms infrequently. In the past, she has been diagnosed with gonorrhea and genital herpes. Her last pap smear was two months ago and was normal. The patient has never smoked and denies alcohol or illicit drug use.
0: Regarding counseling for this patient, Dr. Coleman, what are the key points clinicians should be aware of?
1: This case is pretty interesting and represents a typical patient for us. According to the CDC, in 2009, women represented 24% of those living with HIV infection in the United States and accounted for 20% of estimated new infections in 2010. Of note, the majority of these transmissions are attributed to heterosexual contact. Also, among HIV infected women, approximately 80% are of reproductive age, similar to this case. So, during this routine follow up visit, there are several important issues that should be addressed. First, the clinician should discuss HIV disease management as usual by assessing symptoms, complaints, adherence to antiretroviral therapy, and inquire about side effects of therapy. Another important issue is to review other medical conditions, such as depression, as in this patient, and any new symptoms or concerns that the patient may have. This patient's reproductive history is not uncommon among HIV infected women. Some of the key issues the clinician should consider are to inquire about fertility desires and intentions, review contraceptive options while taking into account the patient's medical history and future fertility desires and last the clinician should have a frank discussion about prevention of other
0: STDs. Uh, Dr. Anderson, uh, anything you'd like to add?
2: I would certainly reinforce the last point in this patient. She has some casual sexual partners, she's using condoms infrequently, and has a history of gonorrhea and genital herpes. I think it's important to reinforce Particularly in this age where there is so much publicity about antiretroviral therapy as prevention of transmission of HIV to uninfected partners, that we may be underemphasizing the continued importance of safer sexual practices. And it's important for her to understand that simply having an undetectable HIV viral load does not protect her against either acquisition or transmission of other sexually transmitted infections.
0: For the purposes of this discussion, let's make a few assumptions. Let's assume that this patient is tolerating the antiviral regimen, she's not having side effects, and she actually remembers to take her once-daily tablet every night. How would you recommend the clinician determine her fertility desires and intentions? Uh, Dr. Anderson?
2: I think that one of the most important things is to ask. Studies have shown that women want to talk about fertility, but that often it is not brought up by their clinician and they are afraid to. They're afraid of stigma or judgmental attitude. So it's important, first of all, for the clinician to be proactive in asking about what their fertility desires and intentions are. Janelle, what would you add to that?
1: Yes, I agree with that. I think also as in this case, asking about the relationship with the partner, determining whether or not the current partner is also the father of her children. Because if not, you want to know whether or not he desires to have children as this might influence the patient's decision. Another point to consider is the patient's age and prior fecundity or the ability to have children. And studies show that a woman's best reproductive years are in her 20s and fertility gradually declines in the 30s, particularly after age 35. So this woman is in her 30s. She's a fertile 30-year-old woman. She has about a 20% chance of getting pregnant. So this means that for every 100 fertile 30-year-old women trying to get pregnant in one cycle, 20 will be successful and the other 80 will have to try again. And by age 40, this declines to less than 5% per cycle. So if the patient desires more children, It is definitely important to inquire about all these issues, but also to ask about a time frame, whether or not she's thinking about the next year or is this something she's thinking about in the future five years from now.
0: Uh, Let's make a few more assumptions, again, for the purposes of this discussion. Let's assume the patient does not want any additional children and that she's due for another contraceptive injection in three weeks. Now, my question is this. Is it appropriate for the clinician to provide additional counseling about the contraceptive method that she's chosen to use, or should the clinician simply reorder the DMPA, which is her current choice? Your thoughts, Dr. Coleman?
1: Yes. reassessing the contraceptive method at each visit is very important. In the U.S., it is estimated that over half of pregnancies among HIV-infected women are unintended, and although most HIV-infected women use contraception, as shown in the Women's Interagency HIV Study or WISE cohort... The majority of these women rely on condoms. Now, condoms are about 85% effective, but that's only if you use them consistently and correctly. And their use also requires negotiation with male partners. So with women, it's also important to assess their contraceptive desires at each visit. Other contraceptive methods that could be discussed include hormonal birth control methods such as oral contraceptives, the vaginal ring, the patch, injectables, contraceptive implant, and the intrauterine device. However, it's important to determine if pill burden is an issue with your patient or adherence to medication, as some of these hormonal birth control methods will require the patient to think about contraception daily, weekly, monthly, or quarterly. Also, the provider must take into account possible drug-drug interactions between some hormonal methods they're usually the estrogen-containing pills, but some of the progestins as well, and whether or not these interact with the patient's interretroviral medication. And overall, because of some of these complexities, the primary care providers have expressed a lack of knowledge regarding safe options for HIV-infected women. And as a result, they typically counsel and only prescribe a limited subset of contraceptive methods that are available. In contrast, The contraceptive implant and intrauterine device, which are considered long-acting reversible contraception, or LARC, do not require the consistent scheduling or constant thinking about contraception. LARC are the most effective reversible methods available. They are covered by most insurance plans, and generally they are regarded as safe for HIV-infected women, but studies show that they are underutilized. This underutilization of LARC is possibly due to suboptimal integration of reproductive health care into HIV care and provider lack of knowledge regarding their use. Another important point to consider in this patient is the fact that she's using uh, DMPA for over six years. Now, injectable DMPA is a popular contraceptive method because it is discreet. It's injected every three months. It has minimal drug-drug interactions and is highly effective. However, providers must also consider other side effects of prolonged DMPA use, and this would include weight gain, mood changes, and irregular bleeding. A very important risk of prolonged DMPA that should be mentioned is reduced bone mineral density. So, DMPA received a black box warning from the FDA in 2004 because of reduced bone mineral density seen in patients who used it for more than two years although the effect is largely reversible after discontinuation of use. So coupled with other risk factors associated with reduced bone mineral density in HIV-infected women, such as antiretroviral therapy like tenofovir, possible methadone use, vitamin D deficiency, providers might want to exercise caution with prolonged DMPA use and reassess its use at each visit. However, there are no data overall to provide guidance, and this is an area of research that should be explored. I can say in my practice, after two years of continual DMPA, I have a brief discussion about bone health that includes dietary and lifestyle modifications, such as increasing calcium and vitamin D intake, increasing weight-bearing exercise, smoking cessation. I also discuss fertility desires and intentions. And unless there are clear contraindications or the patient desires pregnancy, say, within the next year, I typically counsel patients about the benefits of LARC, dispel some of the misconceptions, and encourage uptake. Jean, how do you counsel patients about prolonged use of DMPA?
2: I counsel them very similarly to you. And I think in this particular case, one alternative I would also discuss with patients is the option of permanent sterilization. In a woman who does not want any additional children, a permanent method rather than a reversible method should be discussed with her. And there are a couple of permanent methods that are available to women, including tubal ligation, which requires a minor surgical procedure, and Sure, which can be performed in many cases in the office, but it is important to know that they are permanent. So in counseling, women should be advised about this, but they are terrific options for women who have totally completed childbearing.
1: Yes, I agree. Overall, I think the message here is that there are high rates of unintended pregnancy among HIV-infected women, and highly effective contraception, such as LARC, should be encouraged. Providers often would like to have extra guidance on counseling these women, and it is available online through the CDC's Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive Use. Uh,
0: a link to that CDC website can be found in the transcript version of this podcast. Now, Dr. Coleman, This patient reported multiple sex partners with inconsistent barrier use. What's the best way to evaluate and mitigate the risk that behavior entails?
1: A detailed sexual history should be taken on all patients. And patients should be counseled about primary prevention of STD. So if a woman engages in risky behaviors, such as exchanging sex for money, housing, drugs, or reports multiple sexual partners, new partners, inconsistent condom use, substance misuse, then a discussion should be had about potential long-term sequelae of untreated cervical infections. And this would include ectopic pregnancies, pelvic inflammatory disease, pelvic pain, and possibly infertility. And that infections can be prevented by reducing risky behaviors. As secondary prevention, the CDC STD treatment guidelines, which are also available online, recommend that HIV-infected women undergo annual screening for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichotomiasis. So many providers routinely screen for chlamydia and gonorrhea, however, trichomoniasis, which is the most common curable STI among women, is often forgotten. Data have shown that trichomoniasis may increase HIV shedding in the female genital tract and potentially increase HIV transmission. So it's important for providers to think about trichomoniasis in addition to chlamydia and gonorrhea. Another point to consider is that a speculum examination is not necessary to screen for these STIs, as these infections can be detected from self-collected vaginal swabs, urine samples, or provider-collected vaginal swabs. Screening for chlamydia uses a sensitive nucleic acid amplification test that is now available, like they are for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And now many laboratories have the capability of testing for all three infectious agents using the same swab. And the last point to introduce is the concept of dual protection to patients. So many reproductive aged women think mostly about birth control, but they may not think about preventing sexually transmitted infections. So this means for providers to encourage barrier protection or condom use in addition to highly effective forms of birth control.
0: Well, thank you both for that case and that discussion. And we'll return with Dr. Jean Anderson and Janelle Coleman in just a
3: moment. Hello. I'm Jeannie Curley, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of eHIV Review. If you found us on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins eHIV Review an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit and nursing contact hours with expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with HIV. By subscribing, you'll receive eHIV literature review newsletters and practice-based podcasts like this one directly through your email. There are no fees to subscribe or to receive continuing education credit for these activities. For more information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.ehivreview.org. Thank you.
0: Welcome back to this eHIV Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guests from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine are Dr. Jean Anderson and Dr. Janelle Coleman. And our topic is HIV and Women. We've been discussing how some of the new information Drs. Anderson and Coleman reviewed in their newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. So to continue, Dr. Coleman, let me ask you to bring us another patient, if you would, please.
1: A 37-year-old woman with a past medical history of morbid obesity, hypertension, and HIV presents to discuss a desire for pregnancy. The patient has been infected with HIV for 15 years and has had an undetectable HIV RNA level for at least the past two years. The antiretroviral regimen includes etravirine, tenofovir, and lamivudine. She has not had an AIDS-defining illness. The CD4 cell nadir was 275, and the most recent was 1193. The patient underwent gastric bypass a year ago and has lost 100 pounds thus far. She exercises regularly and follows a strict diet. She takes hydrochlorothiazide for management of hypertension. The patient has never been pregnant. She recently was married and would like to start a family. Her husband is HIV negative and gets tested every six months. He has fathered two children in a previous relationship, and he is present for the discussion. She reports consistent condom use. She has never been diagnosed with other STDs. The patient smokes two to three cigarettes per day and denies alcohol or illicit drug use.
0: What do you see as the initial steps in the management of this patient?
1: an increasing common scenario, I think one of the first things is to consider the couple's motivation and readiness for pregnancy. So one can assess whether or not the patient and husband have tried to conceive before. And if so, then follow-up questions include if they've conceived with previous partners, like the male partner has, the length of time they've been trying to conceive, and most importantly, the method in which they've been trying to conceive. The next step is to take a careful, detailed menstrual and reproductive history. This would include determining whether or not the patient appears to have ovulatory menstrual cycles. In other words, determine if she has a normal, regular menstrual period. The menstrual cycle is counted from the first day of one period as day one to the first day of the next. And it isn't the same for every woman. So a normal cycle can occur anywhere from 21 to 35 days and last to the seventh days. So it is important to determine what is quote-unquote normal for this patient is there anything
2: else? I think in cases where the focus is on HIV, we may forget that additional considerations in trying to conceive relate to medical conditions in the patient or her partner that may affect the safety of pregnancy. In this case, this patient has had bariatric surgery, which may complicate a future pregnancy nutritionally or may be associated with difficulties or problems with fetal growth. In addition, she's on hydrochlorothiazide, and there would be drugs that would be considered safer to take in a woman who is pregnant or trying to conceive for the purposes of controlling her hypertension. So these things don't necessarily have anything to do directly with her HIV, but would affect the sort of counseling and preconception
0: care she receives. So let's assume, at least for this discussion, that the patient has a normal menstrual cycle. Dr. Coleman, where should the discussion go next?
1: Well, a normal cycle might suggest that the patient is ovulating regularly and therefore less likely to have a hormonal imbalance. So during the interview, I would then focus on possible anatomic reasons I could impair fertility. This would include asking about a prior history of chlamydia or pelvic inflammatory disease as patients with these infections are at higher risk for fallopian tube scarring that can lead to blockage. However, the provider must not forget to evaluate the male partner. Generally, in infertility cases, a third of the time it is due to the woman, a third of the time is due to the male, and a third is usually unexplained. So it's important to include the male's partner's medical and sexual history as well since he is an equal partner.
0: What would you tell this couple about their options for safer conception? What does the evidence say?
1: There are two landmark studies to inform safer conception. First, there was the HPTN052 that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which looked at HIV in couples, where one partner was HIV-infected and the other was uninfected. It showed that starting treatment early in the HIV-infected patient decreased the likelihood of transmitting HIV. And the second study is the Partners PrEP study, which was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this study was among steroid couples, but the HIV-infected partner was not on antiretroviral therapy, and the HIV-uninfected partner used pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. This study also showed a decrease in HIV transmission. So together, these studies show that horizontal transmission is decreased with antiretroviral therapy used either as treatment for the HIV-infected partner or used as prophylaxis in the HIV-uninfected partner. In this particular case presentation, the woman is HIV-infected and the man is HIV-uninfected. Before attempts to conceive, of course, she should be adherent to her antiretroviral therapy regimen and have an undetectable plasma viral load. Adding PrEP to the tools for the HIV-uninfected male partner should be discussed. However, modeling studies show limited benefit for PrEP if the HIV-infected partner is on heart and has complete viral suppression. Overall, both partners should be screened for sexually transmitted infections And a frank discussion about monogamy should be undertaken, as monogamy cannot be assumed and the providers need to know whether or not there are other sexual partners involved. So some simple low-cost options for providers to discuss include timed intercourse. The important point here is for providers to educate couples regarding timing sexual intercourse in the most fertile time of the month. The goal is to have sperm present in the female genital tract before ovulation, So, sperm can survive up to five days in the female reproductive tract. However, an ovulated egg can last only 12 to 24 hours. So, if intercourse occurs after ovulation, it is unlikely to lead to conception. So, Jean, how do you counsel your patients about timed intercourse?
2: I tell them what you've just said, but I try to give them some tools in terms of being able to identify the appropriate time. For women who have very regular periods, they can use their own menstrual calendar and try to determine the best time to try to conceive. There are also some online resources where they can plug in their dates of their last period and how many days their cycles usually are and be able to determine the time when they are most fertile. And then finally, there are ovulation predictors that can be purchased over-the-counter in pharmacies that can help determine the most appropriate time to try to conceive.
1: Another thing I would like to add is a discussion about home insemination for the couple, whereas during the most fertile time during the menstrual cycle, they can use mutilous syringe or these menstrual cups to collect the sperm and deposit into the female genital tract. Or another option is just during the most fertile time period to not use condoms at all if intimacy and home insemination feels like it's not intimate enough.
0: Uh, Is there anything else, additional testing, other management interventions, that the clinician should do before referring this couple to gynecology?
1: Another important issue is to address the current antiretroviral regimen that the woman is taking and to assess his safety during the first trimester of pregnancy. So although this patient is not taking favrin, if she were, then it is recommended that the provider switch to another regimen before the patient conceives. However, Jean, you know more about that as you sit on the perinatal guidelines committee. What do you think?
2: The perinatal guidelines are updated on a regular basis. They are housed at the AIDS Info website, which houses all of the U.S. Public Health Service guidelines related to HIV. And there is a special section in the guidelines addressing issues related to preconception, counseling care, and use of antiretroviral agents. So I would refer providers to this website as this data is constantly evolving. But I believe that, as Janelle said, currently faverins is the primary drug for which there has been a significant concern about teratogenicity and is certainly not recommended in someone who is trying to conceive. And I might mention also that the CDC, just within the last month or two, has issued new guidelines for the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis. And do mention that PrEP should be discussed with heterosexually active women and men whose partners are known to have HIV infection, such as discordant couples, as one of several options to protect the uninfected partner during conception and pregnancy. And there is much more detail in these guidelines about the use of PrEP.
0: I want to thank our guests for that patient discussion and let our listeners know that a link to that CDC site for HIV, AIDS, and PrEP guidelines can be found in the transcript version of this podcast. Uh, We've got time for one more patient, so if you would, Dr. Anderson. A 38-year-old
2: woman presents for her initial prenatal visit at 17 weeks of gestation. She was diagnosed with HIV in 2001 after immigrating from Zambia. She works as a nurse and is married. Her husband is HIV uninfected. She has a history of two prior miscarriages and conceived in this pregnancy with ovulation induction and intrauterine insemination. She is on a regimen consisting of nevirapine, tenofovir, and cydovidine coformulated with lamivudine and has been on this regimen since starting ART in 2003. Her most recent CD4 count six months prior to this visit was 671 cells per microliter, and her HIV RNA level was less than 20 copies per milliliter. She reports a history of perfect adherence. Her initial prenatal lab showed a CD4 count of 461 cells per microliter and an HIV RNA level of 139,000 copies per milliliter.
0: Based on what you've just told us, what additional information would you want to obtain to most effectively counsel this woman about her pregnancy?
2: I think the first issue is to readdress her adherence. This needs to be asked about in a nonjudgmental way, acknowledge that it's not uncommon to miss occasional doses and how difficult it is to take doses on a regular day of any medication. The way I like to ask it is, how many doses do you miss in any average week? That gives her permission to be frank with me and is nonjudgmental. I then also ask about any other medication she's on. There might be potential drug interactions which could lessen her antiretroviral drug levels and possibly result in elevation of HIV viral load. In pregnancy, particularly in early pregnancy, I ask about other things that may result in intolerance or interfere with absorption of these drugs, such as nausea and vomiting in early pregnancy. I talk about the need to take some antiretrovirals with food and assess if she's doing that. And then finally, I always obtain a genotypic resistance testing while she's on the current medications. This is recommended for all pregnant women who have a detectable viral load when they become pregnant, whether they're on antiretrovirals or not, and would be particularly important in this case where you want to rule out the possibility of resistance.
0: Barriers to adherence during and after pregnancy, what are some of the most commonly encountered?
2: I think one of the common barriers is concern about the safety of medications in pregnancy by either or both the patient and the provider. And they may decide to interrupt therapy in early pregnancy because of these concerns. Many pregnant women are first diagnosed with HIV in pregnancy and are then in the position of needing to start medication somewhat urgently for the reasons of preventing perinatal transmission and yet they have not yet accepted this diagnosis and really haven't had the time to ensure good readiness to start lifelong therapy. Many women are concerned about the issue of stigma and lack of disclosure and regimens that require them to take medication at a certain time of day may cause them concerns if they are around at work or around family members to whom they have not disclosed. I already mentioned the issue of nausea and vomiting in early pregnancy that may affect absorption of these drugs. And there are other side effects associated with pregnancy which may be additive with the side effects of antiretroviral agents. And then finally, in the postpartum period, postpartum depression, or simply the stress associated with caring for a new baby may be significant barriers to good adherence. Janelle, are there other things you would add about barriers to adherence?
1: Yeah, I agree with what you said. I think another thing that we should screen for is depression or other psychiatric illnesses during the pregnancy, as in non-pregnant population, depression or psychiatric illnesses have been shown to lead to poor adherence. So it's important that we remember that each patient may undergo changes in pregnancy and to assess
2: her mood at this different visit.
0: Uh, Dr. Anderson, let me ask you, poor adherence during the pregnancy, what are the implications?
2: I think the implications are, first of all, the same as for women who are not pregnant and other individuals with HIV infection. There's an increased risk of virologic and ultimately clinical failure of these drugs to control HIV. There's an increased risk of drug resistance. I think there is also an increased risk of transmission, transmission to an uninfected sexual partner, and there may be increased risk of transmission to a fetus.
0: I think one of the most important questions I need to ask is what action can you as a clinician do to facilitate adherence during pregnancy? I
2: think it's important to educate women about the importance of adherence in general and the additional considerations in pregnancy. Disclosure should be assessed And issues related to this or concerns about this addressed, and I offer to assist with disclosure if needed. It should be emphasized to pregnant women and to their providers that you don't want to interrupt antiretroviral therapy in pregnancy, even early pregnancy, unless there is severe hyperemesis, unresponsive to anti-nausea drugs, or other severe or life-threatening toxicity or severe illness that precludes oral intake. It's important, if possible, to use regimens that have a low pill burden and convenient dosing and to assess and address other barriers specifically. Janelle, what would you add to this? Yes. I think
1: it's very important
2: to have a multidisciplinary approach
1: to the care of pregnant women with HIV. So this includes wraparound services that are provided by your case managers, your peer counselors, social workers, that can help the patient maintain adherence during the pregnancy.
0: I want to thank both our guests for sharing their insights with us today. And I'd like to wrap things up by reviewing the key points of today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the management of contraception in HIV-infected women. Dr. Coleman? Long-acting,
1: reversible contraceptive methods in HIV-infected women are safe and highly effective tools that should be encouraged in HIV-positive populations. We also discussed potential adverse effects of prolonged injectable DMPA on bone health in women are HIV-infected that may take other medications that adversely affect bones. And we also talked about potential drug-drug interactions between some contraceptives and antiretroviral
0: therapies. And our second objective, counseling for preconception and conception options for serodiscordant couples. Dr. Anderson?
2: We discussed the importance of assessing and controlling any comorbid conditions in addition to the management of HIV infection. We also discussed options for safer conception, including antiretroviral drugs with treatment as prevention, as well as pre-exposure prophylaxis for the uninfected partner, as well as other potential options for safer conception. And finally, we talked about approaching couples to encourage monogamy and other ways to decrease risk of transmission, including safer
0: sexual practices. And finally, the challenges to adherence during pregnancy as well as during the postpartum period. Dr. Coleman?
1: We reviewed barriers to adherence during and after pregnancy, the implications of poor adherence in pregnancy, and factors to help facilitate good adherence.
0: Dr. Jean Anderson and Dr. Janelle Coleman from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review Podcast.
1: Well, thank you. I truly enjoyed the discussion.
2: Thank you, Bob. I really had a great time.
0: To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post test at www.ehivreview.org forward test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners whose work or practice includes treating patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eHIV review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIV Healthcare. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.